Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out on the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You worked for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, done a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. This is America with your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? Welcome back. It's the Tuesday edition of This is America. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, El Conservador, right here, 17 blocks away from Madison Square Garden in New York City. And man, a lot going on. We got the legalization of cheating and the weakening of our elections. This is what Democrats call voting rights, the Voting Rights Act, to be exact. And I'm glad that the Republican Party is standing up to this flawed, defective legislation. And same thing for D.C. statehood. Now, over the weekend, we celebrated Father's Day. Today is primary day in New York City for the very contentious race for the next New York City mayor. Both Democrats and Republicans are vying to be the candidate, the nominee. So I can't wait to see how that pans out. Of course, I'm rooting for my guy, Curtis Sliwa, and we did try to get uh, Fernando Mateo on the program. Just timing didn't work out right, so I owe him an interview. Uh, His team did reach out, but we weren't able to schedule it because I was off for Father's Day for this last weekend before primary date. But I did want to put that out there. Now, going back to what I said, Father's Day. Father's Day is something that people nowadays with these new names and titles for people, like calling certain women birthing people, and uh, what I've been calling men inseminators or impregnators, you would think that there would be an uproar for even celebrating Father's Day. Well, for inseminators like me, impregnators like myself, we celebrated uh, children, our children, and I celebrated my own children, my two daughters, who um, spent the weekend with me campaigning for, this is Curtis Sliwa, our good buddy, and I got some gifts and stuff like that, and it was a really good time. Spending the day with my little ladies, campaigning out in Queens and Staten Island. It was great to be out there with a bunch of great patriots. And afterwards, we caught a movie. And I'll give that movie review in a little bit because I don't usually do movie reviews. But this is one I've already spoken about, so I think you're going to want to hear it. But first, que mala eres strikes again. That's right. The famed singer Nina Simone, well, her granddaughter says that que mala eres was bullying her around. Fox News headline, Nina Simone's granddaughter says Kamala Harris bullied her mother to the point she almost killed herself. Que mala eres is living up to her name. Again, que mala eres means how bad she is in Spanish. And the legendary singer Nina Simone's granddaughter, Rihanna Simone Kelly, wrote on Twitter, My family doesn't run her estate anymore. It was taken away from us and given to white people. (laughs) Our family name was dragged through the media. We get no royalties, nothing. You want to hold someone accountable? Ask Kamala Harris why she came from my family. Oh, snap. It's getting gangster here. And that's at Real Simone on Twitter saying that Kamala Harris separated her family. Blames the fact that her grandmother's estate is in a shambles because of Kamala Harris. And says that her mom almost killed herself 
from the depression. As all of this stems down to Kamala Harris being the attorney general of the state of California and was responsible for managing the trust for the family, the Simone Charitable Trust to be exact. Now, this is very contentious. And, you know, by today's standards, you've got to take it extremely seriously. Well, because the Simone family is African-American and Kamala Harris also claims to be African-American. Now, you know, I personally don't care what people's backgrounds are. I let you guys know my background because in this woke culture that we have today, we sort of have to live our lives through the lens of racism. You have to go around saying, hi, I'm the white guy or hi, I'm the brown guy or this or that. But I don't necessarily believe that we have to actually do that. Honestly, you know, if I were to voice a commercial for This Is America, I would honestly tell you, I don't care what you do. I don't want to be judgmental to anybody because... I'll take it back. I actually do care what you do. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want you to hurt others. But if you're in the process of doing something that I disagree with, I'm going to try and let you know and I'm going to be as polite or as nice as I can be because I don't want to be judgmental and I'm hoping to win you over to my side. Ultimately, you know, the Bible I read, it says we've got two bottom line commandments. Love God and love people. But, Not everybody agrees with that. So, hence we have critical race theory and all of this uh, racist dog whistle ideology that the Democrats have been pushing since the days of the KKK's formation, since the days of the introduction of Jim Crow and everything else that the Democrats and the Dixiecrats have brought to the table. And I'm going to touch back on that in a second. But first, I want you to hear this audio. I got it from Mr. Producer. He played it last night on the Mark Levin Show, right? That's right, Monday's uh, Mark Levin Show. And I could not help but backbench this audio because let me tell you, this is some of the funniest stuff that I'd heard. I was there in the control room telling uh, Rich Samantha, Mr. Producer, I was like, hey, you know what? This literally sounds like an SNL skit. And great minds think alike. The great one said the same thing on the air. And I was uh, A, flattered, and B, I laughed because it really does sound fake. But guess what? This is real. Check this out. A living embodied anti-racist culture does not exist among white people. White people got to start getting together specifically around race. White accountability groups are really helpful in terms of having a place to process, having a group of people whose responsibility it is to call me on things or to challenge me. We're unpacking wrong things that we've been taught in history class. I realized that I needed to go back and unpack and reorganize everything that I had learned because it was completely through a white lens. Most of us in doing this work have experienced this where there's a period of deep shame for being white and for acknowledging the harm that our ancestors have caused. And that's a very legitimate piece of this work. And we can't ask people of color to hold our hands through the shame piece. That needs to happen with other white people. (laughs) This is the best stuff ever. White accountability groups. Now, this is what I thought was funny because while they may step off on the right foot, 
They end up getting dismissed completely out of hand, right? Utterly and completely, everybody dismisses this, or at least a lot of people I know dismiss this. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that buy into it too. But I listen to this and I laugh. And I think, you know, how do you expect anyone to take you seriously if because of the color of one's skin, you're supposed to join a white accountability group? Now, we talked about this a million times on this show where I tell you, look, this is not about privilege for race. I can say you can count it a privilege to have legacy. If a country that was started by a bunch of white Europeans lasts a couple of hundred years, and you happen to have family members that were the original settlers, conquerors, conquistadors, colonialists, whatever you'd like to call them today. And you can say, oh, my great, 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 whatever, how many greats, granddad, grandma was on the Mayflower. Good for you. That means there's generations of your family growing roots right here. You know, I live in this town, great town. But I'm not considered a townie because I was born in Ridgefield Park. And the townies all went to school here, were born here, raised here, got married to somebody from here, and still live here with their own family. It's a beautiful thing. Now, that's not something that's an option for me. I don't feel ostracized, per se. It's just different. In 1955, my dad was 18 years old and he was leaving Puerto Rico, la Isla de Encanto, the island of enchantment, right? And he was coming to the Bronx and then made his way to Brooklyn. And he worked in a cardboard factory and as a doorman at a pretty posh building in Tudor City on the uh, east side. And that was his come up. My come up was a little different. I started a barber shop. I got a job at 15 before I could even get working papers. Eventually ended up moving from business, getting into politics and then into broadcasting, doing political media. Different thing for me. Today, my kids know what it's like to live in the suburbs and grow up with parents who are somewhat middle class, and they've seen my struggle somewhat after my divorce. Guess what? Divorce is expensive, folks, and it'll cost you. So they've seen, they've seen some poverty, and they've also seen what it's like to live in the middle class. What they haven't seen is the projects. They haven't seen uh, apartments with mice in them. They haven't seen themselves standing online for government cheese the way I did. Now, I'm not looking for a handout or... Uh, you know, um, for you to listen to my sob story, so to speak. What I'm really trying to do is explain that my kids don't know that because I work to make a difference for them, for their lives. So it would be different for them. That may be a privilege to them, but it's certainly not a white privilege. And people who have more legacy than I am able to have because my dad didn't earn millions of dollars over the course of his life that he could leave to me and, and... will me or deed me property when he died, that generational wealth isn't there and wasn't there. It may be there for my children, but it wasn't there for me. I don't feel oppressed because my dad was in Puerto Rico in 1954. Not in the least. You get my point? Just because someone doesn't have generations of family history and generations of wealth building that can be passed down to the generations doesn't make somebody guilty of being white. It doesn't make them fragile for being white or anything else. Guess what? Alpine, New Jersey is about 25 minutes from my house here in Bergen County, New Jersey. At one point, Jay-Z had a house up there. Sean Puff Daddy Combs, Diddy, he had a home up there. Russell Simmons, a lot of people had homes up there. Big homes, multi-million dollar homes. So are we to think that their children who've grown up in wealth in opulence, 
Should we now say they have black privilege? Or do we say they have white privilege? In my opinion, both would be wrong, right? Because what they have is generational wealth, a privilege of being an American, a privilege of working in a free market capitalistic society where they were able to make records and sell records and earn money. And it's never a perfect world. And there are market constraints. And there are racist people. And there are bad people. And there are criminals. And there are rapists. And there are lots of negative things in this world. But these guys that made it, they circumvented the negative. They overcame the obstacles. And they made it happen. That's what it's all about. That's the American dream. It's not about white privilege. That's a farce. As Grant would say, It's fake, it's phony, and it's fraud. And I'll throw in Fugazi just for good measure. Anyway, keep it locked right there. We're just getting started. I want to talk a little bit about January 6th and how CNN's having a field day with this stuff. Don't move a muscle. I am Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. All right, America, what's up? Welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. This is the Tuesday edition of This is America. I did take the weekend off. I've actually never done that before. Uh, Little secret, I'll tell you. I actually once spent the weekend out on the beach and brought my laptop and a microphone with me to make sure I could hook up to Wi-Fi just in order to do the show because I never wanted to miss an episode. But you know what? There were so many things going on. I was enjoying myself so much with my children and we went to the movies and I want to talk about that movie review, but I'm going to leave that for the third segment because I think you're going to enjoy it. It reflects back on two episodes ago, something we talked about, about Afro-Latinos. But what I want to talk about now is January 6th, right? Because Maxine Waters was on CNN on Monday, and she says, I'm told Capitol Riot Mob was organized by the Trump campaign. Now, of course, this is fake and phony and fraud. The Capitol Mob that did the rioting was not necessarily organized by the Trump campaign. I think everybody knows that. These these guys were, many of them, agitators. These are the guys that do this. Then there was a couple that fell into this, and some of them were just there and followed the wrong people in and ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the people there for the rally are not necessarily the people that were there to break windows and chant, kill Mike Pence. I can't say that they're mutually uh, the same thing. I believe that they are exclusive of one another. But anyway, Maxine Waters telling Jim Acosta that it was the Trump campaign that did all this. Listen to this. Right. But some of these congress, congressmen on the Republican side, as you know, uh, Congressman Waters are saying it was the FBI. Now they're saying it's the FBI. They can say whatever they want to say. You know, one of the things we know is we need a commission. And they're opposing a commission to find out who all was involved. Where did the money come from to send busloads of people in? Who supported them in all of this? Where was the organizing taking place? I'm told there was organizing taking place right in the Trump campaign. And so if they really are concerned about why our capital was invaded and why there was an insurrection, they would support a commission uh, to find out. But they don't want to know because too many of them side with them and support what they have done. And they're not going to call them to task for it. It is outrageous what happened to us that the capital of the United States was invaded by domestic terrorists. And they don't want to live up to it and, and admit what took place. Man, oh man. Like Levin would say, (laughs) this is one of those things where you got to look at it and say, this lady's off her rocker. Está loca la tipa. She's crazy. Listen to this. She says it's outrageous 
that this happened to us. I think it's outrageous that she's a United States congressperson and is putting this type of blame on the American people that showed up for a peaceful protest to patriotically and peacefully make their voices heard at the Congress. But that's her right. And I'm sure there's times where they disagree with me and my right to free speech. So I'm not going to cross that line and try and stifle them in a totalitarian, authoritarian, fascistic kind of way. I am just going to call them out, as is my right. But what's really outrageous to me is that she puts this on all Americans, saying that domestic terrorists, if you like Trump. And I think that's wrong. Now, listen. If you're going to go and take over the Capitol building and break windows and whatnot, of course, there's a piece of me, right, that says, good for you taking back the people's house. But again, that's a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, by and large, I know right from wrong. Notice how I wasn't there. Notice how my children weren't there. And that was by design. My brother wanted to go. And I told him, you need to stay away from that thing. Because something was clearly going to happen that probably should not have happened. And a lot of this stuff was very tragic. Hang Mike Pence stealing Pelosi's laptop, all of that stuff. Necessary much? No, I think not. Making your voice heard without breaking windows and climbing through them and doing all sorts of things? Absolutely. Definitely necessary to make your voice heard. That's why I do this show. And I hate that bad things and unfortunate things happen. I really, really do. But we can do the marching without the marauding. There has to be a difference between us and them. Otherwise, we're just... Like they are, just like the demagogue in chief. That's right, Barack Obama, 44, right? President number 44, Barack Obama, doing a town hall meeting via Zoom, saying that our democracy was on the line on January 6th, and Republican senators are now afraid to talk about the issue. Democracy was not on the line on January 6th. Democracy was on the line when he ran for president. And a bunch of people that bought into his BS allowed it to happen. And I think that's why we have so many radical Trumpers today. I meet so many people that are on the Trump train. They're like, you know what? I've never been involved in politics. I've never cared about any of this stuff. I actually voted for Obama twice, they tell me. And I guess it's that guilt. I'm going to call it Obama guilt, right? (laughs) That leftist Obama guilt where you got suckered and, and duped. By the fake and the phony and the fraud that he is, the demagogue in chief, Barack Obama, he pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes. So now they're out there and they've become activists and I'm glad they're out there being patriots. I'm glad they're out there speaking up for what's right. But notice Obama's still speaking up for what he thinks is right. And he thinks that democracy was on the line. Listen to this. In the aftermath of an insurrection, College can be expensive, but saving now can help your students save later. Give your child's college savings a boost by registering for a chance at a $1,000 savings plan deposit for 6th through 12th graders. Sign up today at iowastudentloan.org slash register. With our democracy on the line, and many of these same Republican senators going along with the notion that somehow there were irregularities and problems with legitimacy in our most recent election, they're suddenly afraid to even talk about these issues and figure out solutions on the floor of the Senate. You know, it's interesting that he would say this because I don't think the Republicans are afraid of having a debate. Matter of fact, I think they want to have a debate. They want to protect the filibuster. They want to use the tools of debate and speech that they've always used in recent history. 
But it's Barack Obama and the Democrats that want to demonize those tools of democracy like the filibuster and say, you know what? No, we're not going to allow that. That's Jim Crow relic. And you can't use that because it's racist. Now, this stuff is old news, but it's in the news again today because today's the vote. And I don't think anything's going to happen with that vote, nor with the D.C. statehood vote. But doesn't mean that they're going to stop trying. They're always going to continue to try and keep going and keep saying that you're a racist and I'm a racist and that America's racist and that we have to atone for our sins by doing whatever it is they say, whether it's give reparations, teach this in schools. And I want to talk about critical race theory and we'll jump into that in a second. But I want to know how somebody's saying that I think it's wrong for you to teach children that if they're white, they are oppressors. And if they're non-white, that they are the oppressed and that this is a permanent fixture of their life because racism is a permanent fixture in American culture. Now, racism may be a permanent fixture in all human culture where you have diversity because I think evil will always exist, but that doesn't mean that good does not exist. So I want to jump into that because I think there's oftentimes this battle over morality that I think is just a double standard. Anyway, don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right there. I am Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. All right, welcome back, America. Bienvenido. I am Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez. Check out the social media, at Rich Valdez with an S. If you want to cop a t-shirt, we've got two different styles available and a couple of hats. You can also check out the richvaldez.com. That's our flagship website where you can find everything, richvaldez.com with the uh, S at the end. If you put a Z, you're not going to find it. Anyway, we're going to talk about all things race and racial and all this colorism and all this crazy stuff that's going on right now because it's seeping into every part of our culture. Now, what I find interesting is when it comes to morality, I think it's immoral to be racist. I don't think we should treat people differently because of uh, the color of their skin. And I think most people agree with me. I think most people I've met in my lifetime are that way. Now, you, you cannot make an argument to me, at least not one I'm going to believe, where, oh, just because your friends aren't racist doesn't mean they are or they aren't or whatever, or what they said when we played that audio earlier about people have to have a frank conversation about race. Listen, I'm okay with having a frank conversation about race. I'm okay with realizing that there are people that may have racist tendencies that they don't even realize they possess. For example, someone who may walk by a white person and not feel anything different. Put that same person walking down the block versus a black person, and because they may have these preconceived notions of that person, they may be somewhat threatened by that person. It could be a media-concocted thing. It could be concocted by the movies. It could be concocted by their own upbringing. And again, I'm not making the case, per se, saying that the movies and the media and all of these things are intrinsically racist or that they're somehow systemically racist. So in a situation like that, you can say, okay, I get it, I understand. Some people may have been conditioned to think this way. That's fine. I wasn't. And I know most people that I know have not. But if you want to make the case that people in flyover country have these insensitivities against people of color, go right ahead. I don't don't think you're going to win. And I do think it's okay to say, you know what? During coronavirus, walking by someone that was Asian looking and feeling like they may be more apt to giving you the virus than someone else is a fear. I don't know if it's necessarily a racist fear, even though it's based on race, because I don't know that they are discriminating against these people because simply because they're Asian or because of something more situational. But even if we say benefit of the doubt, 
racist against Asians during coronavirus. That's you. Guilty as charged. That's something we can have a conversation about. People walking down the block fearing the the white person less than they're fearing the black person. I'm okay with having a conversation about that as well. I'm not going to say that doesn't exist. I've seen that stuff happen. That's not a systemic racist issue. So I think when people try to make this case saying that CRT is teaching people that we have a racist past, what school are they going to? I've never been to a school where we didn't teach about slavery, where we didn't teach about the Emancipation Proclamation, where we didn't teach about the Civil War. Everybody knows that there were slaves in this country. And everybody knows who's been through the public education system that we don't have slaves anymore. But it seems Nicole Hannah-Jones and others, they want to implement this revisionist history where we have to continually harp and focus on the sins of the past. And that's the part where I think we've really missed the mark. I think it's great to go and visit the places that still have whipping posts so people can see how horrific this stuff was and what life was like in a racist America. Great, go and see it. And then open your eyes and look around and see a world where people of all stripes, of all colors, everyone can succeed. But the Democrats want to continue pushing this stuff. I have not yet seen a single Republican that's saying we promote, endorse, and support critical race theory. I just haven't seen it. So this is not a partisan issue, but it seems to be one because of ideological reasons. Nobody's trying to hide history in the conservative movement. Matter of fact, we're usually trying to unearth history to teach people that it was Democrats that were the biggest racists. It was Democrats that created the KKK. It was Democrats that embraced all of this bigotry. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Anyway, I want you to hear from a teacher on a TikTok video telling parents that if they oppose critical race theory teaching, well, they themselves are racist. So this comment right here is asking me to explain um, why not wanting critical race theory in the classroom is racist. Thank you for asking me this question. I'd love to explain it. So critical race theory talks about how the systems that we have, the laws that we have, um, how all of those are designed to oppress people groups. Things like mass incarceration, the prison industrial system, the military industrial system, all of those are used to oppress people groups. By teaching this in the classroom, we can show our kids what systems need to be challenged and thought about differently. Racism isn't going to be fixed by me going down to a kid right here and saying, hey buddy, you really need to be nicer to that kid over there even though they look a little bit different than you. We can dismantle racism by dismantling systems of oppression not by being nice to people. When you don't want to teach future generations about how these systems were designed to oppress people, you're taking the side of the oppressor, being racist. Now, this is one I can't even laugh at. This one right here is really, it's sad, but I'm not trying to be facetious like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this girl's so dumb. How could she be a teacher? No, she's drank the Kool-Aid. I believe she's coming from a sincere place in her heart and she is standing up for what she believes is genuinely right. I would hope that if she hears this podcast, she can understand that there are other alternatives. Now, you got to look at this. And what I mean by alternatives, I mean alternative views, a different viewpoint. She said the systems that we have, the laws that we have, how all of those are designed to oppress people groups. Now, I will submit, and this comes up a lot, redlining is a real example of how white bankers in America, white politicians, white neighbors, white homeowners, white, you name it, who still lived in a time of racism in America, 
banded together to keep black people out of neighborhoods, to keep black people from earning wealth, to keep black people away. But that does not take away from the fact that we talked about last time of how these ghettos were created to begin with, how FDR took the father out of the home and how these fatherless homes are what contribute to this massive crime. So now we fixed the redlining, but we still don't have fathers in the homes. Matter of fact, now 60% of all homes don't have fathers in them. You tell me when you have this many people out there in fatherless homes, or 40%, excuse me, 60% still do and 40% don't. And I'm talking all races. It's much higher in certain uh, minority ethnicities. How do we fix that problem when we haven't fixed welfare? Why aren't we talking about welfare being systemically racist? How our government itself in its approach to marginalize and keep African-Americans, Hispanics, poor whites, undereducated people. Can we say that's systemically racist? Because I'll say it's systemically oppressive. That I believe. I believe these people that live in these, um, I forget what they're called, but they're like digital wastelands where there's no internet, there's no this, they don't have access to education like other people do, they don't have the same access to hospitals, they, they live in trailers, they're in Kentucky, and all they know how to do is mine. And I'm not insulting anybody, I'm just talking from experience, people I've met, one generation after the next. It's very rural in certain parts. There's no black people there. These are white people. And they're facing the same problems that black people are facing, because poverty... And injustice, no, no race. But she goes on and what she said, the military industrial system. You tell me how our military industrial system is systemically racist against black people in America today. It's not. Hispanics are the largest growing minority in the United States military. And for many of them who have been systemically broke because of the stupid rules that FDR came up with for welfare... This has been their hand up and not hand out. It's given them a leg up in life where they can find the discipline, learn the career, do whatever it was they wanted to do, serve their country and move forward. Take advantage of GI Bill. Turn a new leaf. God bless the military. They want to say the military is systemically oppressive? Because why? Because there's not enough black officers? Why? Well, that's because maybe there's not enough black people graduating from college. Maybe there's not enough Hispanic people graduating from college. Is it because they don't want to? Oftentimes it is. But the reason they don't want to is because that doesn't seem like life for them. This is not a systemically racist issue. This is called, I'm going to give you a place to live for free or for 50 bucks a month called the housing project. And the government's going to fix your problem by giving you little bits of money. Instead of teaching you that, you know what, with education, you can make your own way. You can find your own path. You can create your own future, earn your own money, and make a better life for yourself. Now, I I realize there's always going to be people that disagree with me on this stuff. And I can't change everybody's mind. But I can say, please consider the other side of the story. Please look at the other side of the coin. Because this stuff... We've been doing it for decades and decades and decades and it hasn't worked. It's only hurt, in particular, people of color. This is why moms across America are outraged. This is why they're going to school board meetings like this one mom who survived the Soviet Union here in New York 
And she said, you know what? I'm going to go to a school board meeting and I'm going to let them know what I've been thinking. Listen to this. My name is Milena Kontoreva and I'm a mother of three children in district. And I'm very concerned. The proposed anti-racist program is just a prettier name for racial Marxist teaching. You don't need to sugarcoat it for me. I lived it. Same methods, same vocabulary, same preferential treatment to certain groups. That's why equity is packed with good causes like diversity and inclusion, so nobody can challenge it. But I know. Ask me how I know. I was born in Soviet Union and my family has seen it all. Suffering first from Nazi and then from tyrannical Soviet ideology. Back there, I was started with equity for all, quickly and it was nothing to it for my people. And now my family is here because of it, because equity does not work. We did not come here for blanketed synthetic equity. We had enough of that one. We came here for equal opportunity under the law and freedoms in this country. Soviets extinguished all the excellence and opportunity. They told us they were advocates for equity and enemies of privilege. People believed and we paid the awful price. This ideology killed millions of people worldwide. And now you're bringing it to here, indoctrinating our, our children. Equity was just a tool used by communists to make sure everyone was equally poorly educated, so people didn't question authority. While in definition it was about fairness, in reality it means same outcome. Nobody accepts mind-boggling sameness. The key tactic is to remove all the incentive and motivation to succeed for all the students. Is this why student committee proposing less homework and audit for AP classes? Why are you trying to demotivate students and lower the standards instead of directly helping underperforming students? That's exactly what equity means in reality, making everyone mediocre. Yesterday, I got a letter from Dr. Appelbrecht. The Marxist equity mentioned 14 times. I have a message for everyone here. This is not a Bolshevik Central School District in the Soviet Union. This is Bedford Central School District in the United States of America. I live in Siberia. I switched the continents because of equity. I can and I will switch the school district if equity gets pushed, but I will not switch an American dream and equal opportunity. The only system in the world that lifts people up, up gives second chances to people like me motivates and brings the best in people regardless of race and ethnicity. I lived it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you don't need to tell me what is equity. Now look, I know that was a little bit long, but I've always said there's certain people that can sniff out communism and socialism and Marxism a mile away because they've lived through it or they've escaped it. And this woman, kudos to her, is one of those. She's able to compare it to everything that she's ever seen that was wrong with her upbringing. Not because of something her parents didn't do, but because of Leninism and Stalinism stemming from Marxism, the communism of the USSR. She knows this stuff. And when she sees it happening here in America, she's scared to death and scared for her children because she realizes, you know what? We didn't escape that to come here for more of that. I got nothing but respect for patriots that come from communist countries because they appreciate the beauty of America. Because they've seen the other side. They know what the other side of that coin looks like. And it's not good all the time. In fact, it's usually death, dismay, and disappointment. But Nicole Hannah-Jones, the media, everybody else, they're going to tell you this is the new civil rights war. People being oppressed. The oppressed versus the oppressor. 
And that's the only way that we can make it. I say, hell no. At some point in our lives, we have to stand up for something that we don't believe in. Stand up to it. Take it on head on and say, forget about it. I say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again because I feel like every time I might reach a new person. It's not anyone else's job but yours to ensure your own liberty. I know you're thinking, but why do I have cops? Why do I have an army? Why do I have politicians? Why do I have a congressman and a senator? That's when those things are working right. Lamentably, they're not working right right now. They need to be replaced by real patriots just like you. By real patriots like Curtis Sliwa, who through his years, he's an independent. He was the Reform Party chairman. He was a Republican. And he's a Republican again. And he's running for mayor. Why? Because he loves the city. Not because he loves Republican politics but because he knows right from wrong. And that's why I'm supporting him. And this isn't a campaign speech or ad for Curtis Lee in New York, but I'm looking at the life that he's given of sacrifice for the city because that's what he loves. He's always put his money where his mouth is. He's been out patrolling these streets for decades, 42 years with the Guardian Angels Safety Patrol Group. Great. Now New York City has the worst crime problem it's ever had, at least since the 70s. And again, I was born in the late 70s, so in my lifetime, this is the worst it's ever been. Every day now, we're seeing daytime shootings. The cops are getting beat up by the bad guys. The bad guys are in charge. To be cliche, the fox is guarding the hen house. They're trying to end prisons. They're trying to take money away from the police to make them weaker, ultimately, so that they can say, The cops don't even need guns. They're too violent. Let the bad guys have guns, but the cops can't have any. Take the bad guys out of jail because of COVID. Take the bad guys out of jail because it's racist. Take the bad guys out of jail so they could live right in your backyard. But yet, when you find people who are saying this stuff and you look at where they live, they live in a building that has guards. They live in a building with a big fence around it. They live in a high-rise building. AOC wasn't singing those songs when she lived in Yorktown Heights, in the suburbs saying that she lived in the Bronx and now in her fancy pants place in Washington, D.C. These people sell you this utopian dream. I'm not selling you utopia or dystopia. I'm trying to sell you the truth where people can go to school, go to the park, have a good time and you don't have to worry about things where people support the police instead of want to destroy the police and the entire structure of our criminal justice system. Bad guys belong in jail. That's why we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. Gandhi, it's time for you to find something and stand up just like this mom did. I'm going to try and find these clips of moms standing up as much as I can because I think moms have some of the hardest jobs in the world. And if you have children, you know that there's nothing more precious in this life than the lives and futures of your children. And you do anything to protect them so that they can have a better life than you did. I don't know about you, but I adore my children. And I want them to have the absolute best America that I can possibly give them. And I know there's not much I can do to change America, but I know that if I connect with you, there's a bunch that we can do together. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. You have to stand for something because if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you to do nothing. Those are quotes from Hamilton and Sir Edmund Burke. And I leave them with you every week, three times a week, 
because it's my hope that you'll be inspired to do something and you'll bring someone else to do something and they'll bring someone else to do something and we're going to have a wave of new patriots in Washington, a wave of new patriots in the mayor's office, a wave of new patriots, people that love America and don't necessarily love politics. That's who needs to be in there. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, you and your neighbors need to take over your governments and make it a government of, for, and by the people. Hasta la próxima, America. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. As an agribusiness expert with Alliant Energy and a farmer, I know how important it is to get the most out of your land. I know that also applies to getting the most out of how your farm uses energy. That's why Alliant Energy offers free farm energy assessments. With a farm energy assessment, someone like me will find all kinds of ways to help you save money and energy. We can even connect you with rebates to help make energy equipment upgrades even more affordable. Schedule your free assessment at AlliantEnergy.com slash Farm Energy Assessment.